0: Two ships sailed into Baffin Bay, last seen by whalers off the coast. And three years would pass without return, without any messages or reports, and Victorian England began to grow fearful of what might have occurred. And so expeditions were set, Provisions gathered and crews assembled. Many would search for these men, over land and by sea, but none could find Sir John and his crew. What some did discover, however, were strange horrors unimaginable to those back home. Stories of butchered corpses and boots filled with boiled human flesh. A madness that had befallen some of the men. The ultimate fate of each man is still unknown. And what happened, what overtook them, has been a subject of speculation amongst maritime scholars for years. Join us on Into the Portal as we attempt to unravel the doomed fate of the Franklin Expedition.
1: Hello and welcome back into the portal. I'm Amber Ray.
0: and I'm Andrew McKay
1: and we are back with the conclusion of our Franklin series.
0: Yes, we are indeed. Part two of the Franklin Expedition. Before we jump right into it, just a tiny bit of housekeeping. We wanted to, first things first, say welcome and a massive thank you to our new Patreon supporter, Jedge. And just a huge thank you to everybody over there on Patreon that supports the show. Our Shout out to our producer, Tim. Everybody's amazing on there. If you guys haven't checked it out, go pop on over and take a look. We've got like 30 plus episodes for you guys to check out. And uh, yeah, stay tuned for some new Patreon content coming really soon.
1: Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, we're pretty excited. We've got some new stickers coming too, hey?
0: Oh, yeah. It's been
1: kind of slow, though. Sorry, guys. There's delays all over the place. But <laughs> Nature
0: of the of the world as it is right now. Yeah. But we're pretty excited. Yeah, a couple, couple cool new designs Amber's been working on. So, yeah, stay tuned for that. Mm-hmm. You ready to just jump right into this darkness? I'm so ready. Okay. <laughs> so, if you guys, obviously, we encourage you to go listen to part one if you haven't already, but we'll do just a quick recap here. Essentially, we started off with the part one... Uh, Talking about the initial expedition. So Franklin left with two ships, 134 officers and men who were the best equipped possible for the times. They had uh, woolen clothing that was seen to be the best fitted with felt outer coats, you know, woolen mittens, all these types of things. And they were in extremely good spirits fully expecting to be successful in their mission and to reach and map uh, the remaining portion of the Northwest Passage and receive their rewards and all that stuff. We even mentioned in part one that there was a dove that allegedly landed on, I believe it was Erebus, Mm -hmm. uh, right before they left. And it was just obviously an omen of, or not an omen, a sign of of good things to come.
1: Yeah, almost like Noah and the Ark.
0: Exactly. Mm -hmm. So the two ships were last seen headed towards Lancaster Sound. And, of course, we know that the occupants were never heard from again or seen again. But this is what we do know for sure. So we know definitely that they were amply provisioned. They were set up to last a pretty long time in the Arctic. Three to five years, maybe even longer, with strict rationing of their tinned food supply. And there was no mention of distress amongst the Admiralty for a really, really long time because of how amply provisioned they were. And meanwhile, what was actually taking place on the ice for these first couple of years, was obviously extremely grim and still unknown to some extent to this day. We do know that things were going pretty well, though. The first couple of months of the expedition were good. So the ships Erebus and Terra made their way through the ice of Baffin Bay, through Lancaster Sound, before they ended up hitting a little bit of trouble. They ran into thick ice in the Barrow Strait, and this is between Cornwallis Land and Somerset Island. So after hitting this wall of ice in the Barrow Strait, they decided to turn north, So they go north into the Wellington Channel for around 240 kilometers, where they run into a second wall of ice. And this is where things started to go wrong, I guess you might say. So this second wall of ice forced them to retreat along the west and south coasts of Cornwallis Island before they ended up settling into what would be their winter campsite on Beachy Island, which was a tiny piece of land laying off the southwest coast of Devon Island. And in part one, we discussed the ship's abilities, but despite these, they kept getting stuck. They had steam engines, but they weren't quite enough. So they end up being subject to blizzards, freezing temperatures, you know, gales of snow, and trying to keep hope alive that they could break through the ice eventually. So months later, after, you know, suddenly caught in the ice again, September 1846, just off of King William Island, the waters froze completely overnight in a flash storm and locked both ships once again in the ice to the western side of King William Island. Probably the worst conditions you can imagine of the Victoria Strait, just unhospitable territory. And Franklin believed that the ships would be free during the summer of 47. So he he was steadfast in this belief they would still get out of this alive, even though they were locked in the ice off of King William Island. Instead, They remained frozen throughout the summer. Nothing thawed, and the men were forced to spend yet another winter off of King William Island. This is where the story gets dark, both because of the lack of knowledge of what actually happened, we don't really know, and also because of the remnants collected over time that would paint a picture of what we do know now, which was not very nice. (laughs) So this was the perception back home as all this was going on as well. So there was a little bit of anxiety and fear as to the absence around the end of 1847. They left in 1845 because, of course, no word of their progress had come back because there's no way of sending any messages. But there was still no mention of a a relief expedition at all. It was fully expected to not hear from them for a while, two years, maybe even three years. And Franklin himself, he made sure that his wife, Lady Jane, knew this. So she wouldn't worry if they didn't hear from them for three years. And the Admiralty certain wasn't willing to, you know, they didn't want to spend a bunch of money if they didn't have to. They were fully confident that he would make it back. Meanwhile, on the actual ships Erebus and Terror, in the same year, May 1847, there was a group of eight men, two officers included in this group, who were sent out from the ships Erebus and Terror to King William Island. And we know this because of two notes written at different times left in a cairn that was discovered later on. So this was the first message that would be later discovered that painted an early picture of life on the ships. So this was dated from May 28, 1847, and it reads as HMS ships Erebus and Terror wintered in the ice in latitude seventy o five north, longitude 9823 west, having wintered in 1846-7 at Beachy Island... After having ascended Wellington Channel to latitude 77 degrees and returned by the west side of Cornwallis Island, Sir John Franklin commanding the expedition, all is well. So we knew at this time everything was going relatively okay. And there was also a mention in the note that there was to be a foray to Cape Felix, the purpose to set up a magnetic observatory, which was part of Franklin's orders for the expedition, which fully suggested that everything was on track they were secure, they were okay, they were healthy. Of course, there was a second note amended that painted a much different picture almost exactly a year later. It reads as follows. H.M. ships Terror and Erebus were deserted on the 22nd of April, five leagues north-northwest of this, having been beset since the 12th of September, 1846, The officers and crews consisting of 105 souls under the command of Captain FRM Crozier landed here at latitude 69-37-42 North, longitude 98-41 West. Sir John Franklin died on the 11th of June 1847, and the total loss by deaths in the expedition has been to this date 9 officers and 15 men, and start on tomorrow, 26th, for Backfish River. And this was signed by Captain James Fitzjames of Erebus and also signed by Captain Crozier, senior officer um, from the Terror. And by 1848, Franklin and his crew had been gone officially for three years. While they had brought enough provisions, there wasn't exactly a lot of hope amongst Lady Jane, who was really pressing the government and the Admiralty to take action. And in many ways, what would result from the search would be essentially the greatest rescue operation in the history of time and there was more than 30 expeditions over two decades that would search and then many many more after that as well i mean some of the information discovered was in the 80s that's extremely important but this is kind of where things kick off as men go searching for this lost expedition uh, amongst the territory of the northwest passage starting with two pretty pretty famous guys here
1: Hmm. so it was by this point we're reaching three years we're in 1848 and this is when the first of many, many rescue and recovery operations, more so, I would say, start to take place. Yeah, uh, One of the first was led by James Clark Ross, who was the nephew of Franklin's friend, John Ross. Yes. Who had done his own expeditions in the decades previous. He is the one that was actually rescued on... The northern by, what was it, whaling ship? I ships? believe
0: it was, and he barely made it out alive. Like
1: a day away from pretty starvation. much. Mm-hmm. So James Ross had been a successful explorer and had Arctic experience. However, his initial search was itself almost lost entirely. Yeah. It gave a real sense of what Franklin's crew was enduring or may have endured at this point mm-hmm. a lack of supplies and strange illness spread rampantly through his crew yeah. and john ross nearly lost it all in search of franklin his ships actually drifted into the pack ice and were soon trapped in a sound yeah so symptoms of his crew included melancholy sluggishness there was other odd neurological symptoms yeah and it definitely seemed to be the case that scurvy was setting in so they made it back but in disgrace yes. uh, this was unacceptable for everyone including lady jane franklin and uh, the most tragic part about all of this was in later missions explore john ray's efforts would later reveal information that made this particular mission by ross all that much more tragic in the scope of possible rescue opportunities mm-hmm while franklin's men still lived meanwhile spring 1848 on board terrace terror and erebus scurvy and starvation were taking its toll as was lead poisoning they were getting thinner weaker more irresolute right in the words of john geiger who has written several books on the topic and uh, it was just getting more desperate franklin Definitely. was gone by this point uh, it was being led by crozier
0: and Fitz James.
1: And Fitz James, but the actual expedition was led by Crozier. Yeah.
0: Mm-hmm. yeah, you know, and again, like the lead poisoning thing, we'll come back to that at the end because there's some sort of controversy and details yeah. with that. It's you can only, I can't even imagine what the initial thoughts were in '48. I mean, half the people trying to keep you propped up, like Fitz James and Crozier, but they know. I mean, they've done this before. Mm-hmm. Crozier had been there before.
1: Mm-hmm. Man. Yeah, terrifying. So after the failure of Ross, uh, John Ray was also sent on the tail so he was one of the initial it was one of three missions and he was actually an overland explorer right so he's actually credited by hs or sorry the hudson's bay company heritage site as the last explorer sent by hbc to chart the northern lands in search of the northwest passage yeah he was an explorer a surgeon an accomplished outdoorsman the Canadian Encyclopedia describes him as uh, born in 1813, raised in Orkney. And uh, this is in Scotland. Yes. Uh, it was actually quite common. A lot of people that worked for HBC were actually from those islands. And they would come over and a large population on the east coast is actually from that chain of islands too, to this day.
0: Very cool. I know that.
1: So in Scotland, he learned a lot as a boy. Uh, it was a very sparse environment, which proved to be essential for his success as an Arctic explorer.
0: No doubt. Yeah. In
1: 1846, prior to the calls to search for Franklin, he was actually chosen to undertake the final stage of surveying the Arctic coast. So he spent 15 months in the Arctic in his first sort of foray into these sort of yeah like northern adventures, and he largely lived off the land.
0: Yeah, you think you're good at camping.
1: You know, this guy was pretty badass and there was something about him, um, that was different. It made him more successful than other white men. And this was a quote says here this was from the hbc site as well ray made no secret of the fact that he preferred the company of the inuit to his english colleagues and he gained their respect and trust things that would go far in his later searches for franklin yeah he actually adopted many customs of the inuit Um, it was said that he actually preferred their igloo structures as opposed to their uh, european type tents and things like that Mm -hmm. and so yeah, this was a very colourful character. He honestly deserves an episode in and of itself. Totally. <laughs> but by 1848, it was apparent that Franklin and his men were lost. And Ray was chosen to co-lead one of three expeditions charting overland, while one of two others came from the east and the other came from the west of the Bering Strait.
0: I just want to say too, I feel like it's very fitting that some of the first expeditions looking for them were overland considering that Franklin's earliest expeditions Mm. were overland where he nearly died. Yeah. I just find that so, that just sort of coincides, I mean, just fitting. Fitting. Mm -hmm. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So over the course of three journeys between 1848 and 1851, Ray and his partner Richardson were... Tasked with trying to find the wrecks, trying to find evidence of the men, they were largely unsuccessful, save for two pieces of wood that were suspected to be from either one of the ships or one of the sledges. Right. Wood is rare in this neck of the woods.
0: It was an area. It was it was an <laughs> area without a lot of a lot of trees, and um, mm-hmm. it didn't appear to be left by the Inuit per se. But they didn't really have any way of proving it. I guess
1: that's true. Uh, they actually found these on the southern shore of Victoria Island. And, yeah, like I said, they had no way of proving this. However, it was kind of the first inklings of the trail of evidence that was left behind. And later on, Ray, he would go back. He would return several times, and later on, he actually would make more sinister discoveries after he successfully gained information from the local Inuit populations. Meanwhile, in August of 1850, Captain Rasmus Omni... And this is according to one of our favorite podcasts the morbid curiosity podcast yeah uh, this captain actually found discarded food tins and scraps of clothing as well as a cairn on Beachy island however there was nothing man in this man-made rock pile
0: yeah it was it was sort of just I mean, of course, so and just so everyone knows, I think we mentioned in part one, a cairn is left is like, yeah, a pile of anything, rocks, boulders, um, in some cases, cans, like that we, mm-hmm. just, we discover in, in this situation, or uh, anything- to leave a note, uh, right? Uh,
1: exactly. It's to kind of, obviously, it's like a symbol, right? It's like you can see it from a large distance.
0: Distinctly man-made, obviously, so you know that it was left mm-hmm. for someone to go take a look at.
1: Usually stacked in a circular formation to form like a... A monolith,
0: yeah. I guess, and this uh, and this was sort of the first inkling of, of many weird things that, uh, when it came to written uh, things left behind, either lack thereof or strange aspects to them, and so aids into our speculation later on, like were they being removed, were they being tampered with? It all plays into the speculation as to the d- degree of insanity amongst the men and mm. who was doing what, when, and where.
1: Mhm what were their motives what was the logic behind it was there any logic essentially but on this island beachy island like we refer to there was this rock pile there were these discarded tin provisions and advanced evidence of advanced survival on the island so evidence of a forge so like an iron forge to so like right. do metalwork huts other things like this Already, there were some speculations that the food provisions might have been inadequately sealed. They might have been rotting. There was yeah. evidence of that. And the company who manufactured them, Goldner, adamantly denied this, obviously. Yes. Uh, and an independent audit actually discovered no other spoiled tins on other provisions of that, or sorry, expeditions of that time. Yeah. However, which was strange. It is strange, but not without explanation. As history would have it, records proved that the provisions order for Franklin's expedition was rushed.
0: Yes, it was. So
1: this was a factor that could have led to poor quality seals, things that may not have been present during normal manufacturing conditions and normal production. I mean, this was a
0: new technology, so rushing something, even if you are really good at it, is one thing. Rushing mm-hmm. it when you're just starting doing it, yeah, never really done it before. Not but paid. that's still speculation because how rushed was it? I mean, what does that really mean? You know, if there was other, an audit of other tins, they might not have been rushed, but the process is still roughly the same. Uh, obviously just, tin or a lead was used in this part of the seal. So it's like, that is known. We do know that.
1: Yes, exactly. Like the soldering aspect. So whether right. there was sloppy soldering or in my mind, if they're rushing things, they might've just not have had the oversight, like the checking things over. Right. So things that could have been removed weren't. And then they, you know, it could have been like almost like, I'm I'm thinking back to when we were doing canning way back, uh, in our old job, like years ago, and you would have one spoiled can on a pallet and literally that one spoiled can could like cascade and cause like, like ruptures and failures for the whole pallet. Yeah.
0: No so. for sure. Lots of things could go wrong. It's just sort of crazy to think that so many things did go wrong and it potentially started even before anyone boarded a ship. Like that's mm-hmm. that's the that's the part that's so insidious and crazy. Mm-hmm. It was doomed before they even signed up some of them, potentially <laughs> if you believe in the lead thing. We'll come back to that. Actually potentially a problem that other other uh, you know search expedition parties were running into as well because in, in, in you'd think that those would have also potentially been rushed in the search to say, hey, oh crap, we got to send out an expedition here in 1848. Uh, we're rushing some potentially tin provisions again. If it uh, was
1: the tins that was doing it, like right. what if it was something to do with, because they did kind of allude to the idea that the lemon juice they had on board was deteriorating. So it wasn't as effective against scurvy and other sorts of things. Yeah,
0: good for the first few years, but started to lose its its effectiveness. Mm-hmm. And they they started to realize that Pretty, pretty quickly, I think. Mm-hmm. And and yeah, like I said, a lot of other rescue missions would encounter some similar strange things. So kind of around this time, 1850, there was actually American expeditions that would end up going in search of Franklin. And this was under uh, essentially the, the funding of Henry Grinnell, and he would end up funding uh, later expeditions as well. But they ran into all the same problems, you know. They they have woolen mittens and coats and things, and then they ran into extremely damp, cold conditions. Obviously, we know now that those are terrible materials to use in these types of weather. You are going to get hypothermia, pneumonia, mm-hmm. these types of things. It's gonna, it's gonna, uh, you know, advance tuberculosis and these types of diseases that men were experiencing. But these crews would experience some weird stuff. So, like symptoms amongst the crew were unique and extremely strange for the time. So, like. Melancholy wasn't extremely uncommon, but that was one of them. Craving animal fat was a new one that men hmm. were reporting and that hadn't been experienced yet on any of the ships. They also reported having terrifying nightmares and the inability to sleep. They would close their eyes and just see the most horrific things, and pain was starting to creep up in old wounds, old old wounds, hmm. old breaks and bullet holes and whatever it may have been. And this was common amongst multiple different expeditions. So, for example, Henry George Richards, he reported weakness and extremely strange behavior amongst his search crew. Sir Edward Belcher, he ended up abandoning four of his five vessels that were stuck in the ice for two years during his search because of lack of food and resources and discontent amongst his men. Hmm. Captain Richardson Collison ended up placing several of his officers and crew under arrest because they were losing their minds. He believed it to be scurvy. Captain Robert McClure, he stated that after two winters in the ice, his men started to go insane.
1: Yeah, after two winters locked in ice in very miserable conditions with not a lot going on, that's definitely Jack Torrington territory there. uh, Uh, Yeah. Overlook Hotel.
0: (laughs) Definitely. This was actually another note here I forgot to mention extremely gruesome you know obviously food and starvation was one of the main things and every single one of these ships was uh infested with rats and their mm-hmm. hulls and they got to the point where disease infested rats were dug up from the hull and butchered and cooked for meat yummy and well that it would have go helped. even it would get even worse from there
1: it would yes let's go back to john ray for a minute here so like we alluded to before he went on several expeditions And by this point, it had been about nine years since the Franklin disappearance. Yeah. The men were actually officially declared dead on March 31st, 1854. In 1853 to 54, John Ray uh, undertook his fourth and last Arctic journey, according to the Canadian Encyclopedia. Mm -hmm. This is where he hoped to uncover Franklin's fate and claim the 20,000 pound reward waiting back in Britain.
0: Big bucks at the time. Mhm. Big bucks at the time.
1: So in October of 1854, he had a break in the decade-long case. Near Pelly Bay on the eastern side of Boothia Peninsula, he met a solitary Inuit who gave him the first news of Franklin. Up until this point, we hadn't heard anything about their movements on King William Island. Exactly. Yeah. And john ray successfully traded with inuit and gained information and the inuit had artifacts from the ships including silver plates and these actually bared the crest of their owner so that was where they could actually trace back the ownership to the terror or Erebus.
0: yeah do you remember what was on franklin's crest
1: oh it was
0: the the conger eel right
1: I was gonna say it was like a snake or something so and he had eel. the
0: conger eel symbol on and like on the forks and spoons and plates yeah. and crozier would have had had likewise in FitzJames. so these these are the artifacts that would mm-hmm. have
1: been their family crests yeah mm-hmm. yeah not so much for uh, fitz james though hey because he was
0: very true or
1: it might have been fabricated for him because he definitely had a murky upbringing that he did a lot of his colleagues actually tried to um Preserve for him right they they tried to help him for the most part because he was a bastard right he was born out of wedlock it was a an affair and they kind of go into details on the terror right but anyways that's kind of a side note
0: <laughs> he deserves and again he deserves his own biography as well Fitzjames Crozier they're all pretty fascinating individuals on their own
1: so after uh encountering Inuit that had information about the Franklin expedition John Ray he had to make the decision That would essentially haunt him for the rest of his life. Yeah. So he was told the story from Inuit that about 40 or so Englishmen, four years previously, had been seen traveling on foot near King William Island, having abandoned their ice locked ships. So after hearing this news, Ray had to make the decision whether he was going to pursue this information and go to the site uh, fully, or if he was going to go back to England and report back. And at this point, he knew there was several different operations that were not even close to finding any evidence or even in the vicinity of it. So he decided that he was going to go back. He knew that he was kind of making not an easy decision by any means, but one that would ensure his survival. Because if they hadn't made this decision, it would have meant that him and his crew had to face another winter in the Arctic. Yeah. And they weren't really prepared for that. So essentially he arrived in Britain in 1854 And he described the situation for Franklin's men as follows. And this was from the perspective of the Netsilik. Sorry, I am mispronouncing that. The
0: Netsilik is how they pronounced it. And the terror, the Mm -hmm. the AMC series that we watched. And that's, I mean, close enough.
1: It's incredibly hard to find these types of pronunciations. I actually tried to
0: find them. Phonetic pronunciations of Inuit language is definitely not our... We can hardly pronounce English words. (laughs)
1: okay so this is the information that he received this was a quote from his letter that he handed to the british admiralty upon his arrival quote the officer in command of these unfortunates referring to franklin's men had bought from the eskimo for his followers a small seal being greatly in want of provisions at that later period the eskimo found the dead bodies of all of this party on the ice near back river And that the Eskimo had helped themselves to the stores of the dead, taking gunpowder, silver, plates, whatever else they thought fit as appropriate, end quote. Hmm. So the quote, or sorry, the report went on to describe more observations that actually pointed to evidence that the earlier expeditions led by Ross and below had actually been incredibly close in the spring of 1850. Some said even within a few miles to where the men were struggling on King William Island. So this was observations that were pitifully way too late, four years too late, unfortunately.
0: It's just, just, just imagine that for a second. Like just, just that thought that they would be, that these, that these rescue parties were literally like just a a short march away, Mm -hmm. just a couple of miles away, right there. Like basically a stone's throw Mm -hmm. as far as the Arctic is concerned. And that is the most depressing thing ever, really.
1: And could you imagine if if they hadn't had those complicating factors of disease and uh, like poor supplies as far as clothing and warmth and all that type of thing, if they had been able to be more amply prepared, they might have actually saved them. They might yeah. have. It could have been another Ross situation, right? Where they were just on the very last cusp of survival and, and then they were picked up.
0: I mean, the, obviously the the difficult thing with recovery and rescue and any of this stuff is like they're literally just getting sent into the same thing. It's not like you can be like, oh, we mm-hmm. figured out a bunch of new stuff in three years. Here you go. Yeah. You know, <laughs> everyone, everyone, everyone <laughs> was just running into the same problems. They were, yeah. And yeah, that's one of the darkest things we've discovered in this research was that little fact right there that they were that close. Mm -hmm. Crazy. There was another letter sent to the Admiralty, uh, from the Hudson's Bay, September 1st, 1854. And Ray added some additional descriptions um, with his encounter with the Inuit. And they conveyed a reality to him that was obviously extremely dark, as Amber just referenced. And like the account was sourced from uh, an adult male that Ray described as extremely intelligent and he respected. And he met, um, he was a hunter, he was carrying a load of musk ox beef. uh, And he was very cooperative with Ray, unlike others that he had come across during this time. And basically the account after just having conversations with this Inuit fellow was confirmation that in the spring of 1850, there was a group of netslick that, that came across them. So they definitively came across 40 or so, quote unquote, white men mm-hmm. traveling over the Western shore, right in that vicinity of King William Island. They had sledges um, and boats and they ended up actually purchasing seal in exchange for supplies. Yes. Like, so, so this... Like,
1: Exactly. This confirmed the initial report that he had received. Right. So, because he, you know, like it's all these second, third-hand accounts, but this, again, helped solidify the validity of yeah. these reports.
0: And and the, the the quote was, there was an officer amongst this group described as a, a tall, stout, middle-aged man um, who I'm thinking, I mean, it's... it's probably crozier is who i'm I'm leaning towards right? and we do know that crozier could speak the indigenous language
1: a little bit um
0: and a few others could as well Mm -hmm. they could get by so that sort of seems like it would have been him and later on that same spring there were corpses discovered so some 30 bodies uh and some graves um where they still had the energy to do that were discovered on this um piece of land and five bodies on an island nearby and the bodies discovered definitely painted a picture of what what was kind of going on in these final final days at this one particular site. So there were some in tents, some bodies were discovered uh, under the, uh, the boat that they had with them, the small boat, uh, which had been turned over into a form of a shelter. Some of them lay scattered about in different directions uh, as if they were just starting to wander off towards what they thought was safety in sort of some sort of paranoid delusion. I mean, what do you make of that? Like, just from what I've just read here before I continue on, like, do you have any, anything to say to that?
1: Well, it definitely sounds like it was a a camp of desperation and they were using what little means they had left of their disposal. There were other observations though that pointed to, yeah, again, the, the desperate nature of what was going on and that included...
0: Yeah what? that included well <laughs> the most appalling of of what was observed of course was the mutilation of of many of the of the bodies found and the contents of kettles um and in some instances even um, allegedly leather boots that were filled of um, mm-hmm. cooked human flesh
1: Yeah uh, I thought it was really interest like I really liked the wording of the letter or the report as it said uh, he Because again, right, how do you describe these types of conditions to something like the,
0: you know, the British,
1: yeah, to Lady Jane, to the British Admiralty, to everyone involved in this, this society of high civilization. This is like their crowning achievements, like finding the Northwest Passage is, is theirs. It's, you know, it's their God-given right. Yeah. Um, And so he goes on to say... From the mutilated state of many of the bodies and the contents of the kettles, it is evident that our wretched countrymen have been driven to the last dread alternative as a means of sustaining life. A few of the unfortunate men must have survived until the arrival of wildfowl, say until the end of May, as shots were heard and fresh bones and feathers of geese were noticed near the scene of a sad event.
0: Yeah, and I feel like now's an important time to remember in part one, we talked about Franklin's early expeditions and how he caught he got the name the man who ate his boots, and just how how much more this evolved from that. And we're gonna do like a film Friday episode part three on the AMC series The Terror. Mm-hmm. But one of the most profound lines from that series was uh, from one of the members of the Admiralty before they leave, and he says, "There'll be nothing. There'll be nothing. You hear? You'll eat your shoes again. You'll eat worse."
1: Mm-hmm. And they did yes well franklin didn't he was dead by that point
0: yeah th- good for him <laughs> but yeah. his men would
1: <laughs> interestingly enough right that's another parallel to his earlier expeditions because he again was saved from that reputation of them eating each other and like it was thought that maybe some of his other men on the earlier expeditions had resorted to that
0: right mm-hmm. yeah these were a couple of the other observations made at this site that were noteworthy. There was an abundant stores of ammunition that had been emptied out of their containers by the local indigenous that came across it. Uh, a number of telescopes were discovered broken watches and compasses. Uh, there were silver spoons and forks and other things like this discovered, uh, including a plate engraved with Sir John Franklin's. Yeah. With his, his family his crest. Mm-hmm. Uh, they came across, uh, mutilated bodies that we mentioned and, um, The reports from Inuit men, uh, Inuit of men eating each other as they traveled is something that's different than just setting up camp and sort of like I'm we're eating each other to survive. This was so much more because it's like you're it's straddling that fine line between scurvy and lead poisoning and losing your mind and starving, but also having your wits about you enough to prepare and bring flesh with you as you travel.
1: They mm-hmm. were they
0: were bringing their companions with them.
1: Mobile meals. Mobile yeah. meals. Yes, I I think a really important point to make at this time is that John Ray, a lot of these were not his observations.
0: Exactly. So
1: they were just disregarded by a lot of people, including the British public, Lady Jane. He was smeared. Yep. For returning to England instead of verifying a lot of these claims,
0: which is such a backhanded thing to say it's like hey why didn't you stay out there for another full winter and make sure you verified it buddy Mm. it's like well because i would have frozen to death yeah Um, but yeah of course obviously secondhand non-white reports is the major Mm -hmm. factor here we're not to be trusted uh they they Mm -hmm. were this is 18 1850 everyone right obviously indigenous peoples were seen by the british as savages and they weren't to be believed necessarily
1: Exactly. And because of the the harshness of the conditions of the Arctic and the lack of uh, means of survival, it was also seen as like, they weren't opportunists. But again, right, like you you take what you can from the land. And even things like, you know, like we've already mentioned that the Inuit did take what they could from the, the bodies and the sites that were found because they had to. They weren't doing it just to be dicks. Like they, it, you know, it's very brutal so you just need to you need to do what you gotta do and i don't mean eating your fellow countrymen but again right like you when your mind starts to slip things start to go wonky it's it's easy to do and obviously the inuit have lived for hundreds if not thousands of years in these conditions so they know that's why they have things like the wendigo and they have all these like you know these these characters these stories these tales to kind the of idrak like you know,
0: our, and the and idrak in the, in the exactly and sure
1: mm-hmm. you know. and another important thing too is like it's so unfortunate that these were seen as exactly not to be trusted because it was the only evidence and information they had yeah. right and there will be other things found later on but at this point basically that's all they got is is reliance on indigenous knowledge and history and this next character that we have coming up here charles francis hall an american who was born in vermont in uh, 1821 he exclusively almost exclusively relied on the indigenous people he he lived with them for close to a decade like you know like intermittently i don't think it was a full decade it was on and off but he he really respected them and He gained a lot of similar information that Ray had gathered previously. So again, this is just amalgamating these little bits, these little Hansel and Gretel, like breadcrumbs, so to speak. Yeah. But essentially, yeah. So like I said before, Hall was an American and he was funded by Henry Grinnell. So American businessman, philanthropist and... (laughs) He was under the thumb of Lady Jane to a certain extent. Big time. Lady Jane, we haven't really discussed her too much so far, but she was very influential, obviously. She pitted the British and the Americans against each other to keep getting expeditions sent out. And partly she encouraged them by saying, well, you still have to lay claim to this Northwest Passage. Who's going to do that, American or British? She didn't really care about that, but she wanted people out there looking. Yeah. So that was her modus and she was very effective with that. So Henry Grinnell, we already mentioned him um, like about 10, 15 minutes ago. He funded some
0: stuff earlier, yeah.
1: Exactly, closer to 1850. But again, it continues on with Francis Hall. And so Hall sailed to Baffin Bay as a private citizen in 1860. So this is a little bit later on here. And he was trying to gain more knowledge about the fates of Franklin's crew So in 1864, Hall and two of his Inuit companions made their way to King William Island, where they found and collected a skeleton. This skeleton was actually later identified as the remains of Lieutenant Veskant, who was of the Erebus. And they also had some interesting facts. So like Ray's reports, the Inuit told Hall of the stories of their people who had visited the ships as they remained stuck on the ice. So before they had left. Yes. This is interesting. So an Inuit man by the name of Mm. Cochleargnon, sorry, had silver spoons that were belonging to Crozier. And he said that they had been given to him from a man on the ship. So again, this is earlier than Ray's reports. And his wife... Also had a silver case from the ship, and the two of them had actually visited the ships and had encountered what they called a great jovial commander who was thickly proportioned, bald and bespeckled, and had been very popular and well liked by everyone on board, including the Inuit. However, that being said, they visited a few times. They were kind of keeping tabs on these ships as they were locked in the ice. Right. And last time they saw him, he appeared sick and lame. So that possibly could have been Franklin, right? Because They're on the ships, great jovial commander. It very much fits the description of him, right? Well-liked, definitely that would be the case. Yep. The idea of him being sick. So again, that kind of, if he was sick and died, that makes sense. So it was early, it was
0: 1847 he died? When he passed, yeah, June 47, I Mm -hmm. believe it was. So this, yeah, it all matches up. It sounds exactly like Franklin.
1: It does. And the years aren't precise. Some people have thought that, they could have been talking about Ross's earlier expeditions that got locked in the ice about a decade before Franklin's, but a lot of it, kind of the, like I said before, the descriptions do fit Franklin more so than Ross.
0: Because Ross was not a, a portly jovial Joan, commander. No, he was actually uh, quite disliked by his crew,
1: by mm-hmm. all accounts.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, story for another day. <laughs>
1: yeah. So Hall's account revealed the extent to which the Inuit were aware of the ships and their occupants. They carefully watched their presence on the ice in those fateful years. However, they were unable to save the men at risk of perishing themselves in these harsh conditions. And they weren't actually asked to. Like you know, None of their accounts say that they were asked to lead an expedition out. None of that, right? They weren't called upon. But in 1869, Hall sent word to his patron, Grinnell, and in it, he stated that his companions had been directed towards Melville Island after word had been sent that white men had been seen. So Hall described how the Inuit related to him that they had come across Crozier and a party of about 40 to 45 men on the western side of King William Island in 1848. And that year, again, give or take right. a <laughs> little pit there. Yeah. So the party was carrying uh, two sledges of supplies, and they had met up with four Inuit families just before reaching and camping at Cape Herschel. So in this letter, he described how the Inuit abandoned the men to their fates, when he thought they could have saved them. Which in my mind, I'm kind of thinking, like, this is speculation, but I think that was being a little generous oh, in the time. abilities of the Inuit. But anyways.
0: Well, they I mean, you said in part one, this area of King William Island and many of these other uh, areas in the north had been almost entirely abandoned by the Inuit. Mm-hmm. They had been, they were desolate. Caribou didn't go there hunting, learning to hunt seal takes years. The fact that some of the um, ship crewmen were able to hunt seal was a m- miraculous miracle. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that just goes to show how hard it is to live in this condition. So if when you add 50 people that are all British and pretty much useless in the Arctic, right. Yeah, it's not exactly going to prop up your chances of making it through the winter.
1: No, so. definitely not. And they did camp nearby. It wasn't as if they were like not on good terms or anything. It was just a matter of like, you're here, we're here, we're all doing our thing, kind of whatever. The way that Hall describes it was that... <laughs> He says that they did, quote, secretly and hastily abandon Crozier and his party to suffer and die for need of fresh provisions. When in truth, it was in their power of the natives to save every last man alive. But that's his own speculation, I think. But the trail of evidence kind of just kept going from there. So there was the Cape Herschel skeletal evidence. Essentially, yeah, it just continued on. So... There were more skeletons found along with the remnants of a camp along Pfeiffer River. The trail continued southeastwards towards the final resting places known as Desperation and Starvation Coves,
0: Aptly named.
1: Exactly. He discovered a lot of similar things. He was adding to the accounts. The picture was forming that clearly they had traced some sort of route south towards towards Back River and that Basically, yeah, they were just getting picked off, like, as the conditions took them.
0: Yeah. Dark stuff.
1: hmm So we're going to take a quick promo break.
0: And be back with more terror.
1: Hey, guys. We know it's not always easy to admit you need help with something, but that's why there are so many other alternatives to traditional therapy these days.
0: Yeah, we were really excited when BetterHelp approached us because we didn't even know that services like this existed. And it just makes it so easy and accessible to get help with your mental health, which is so important. You can access licensed professional counselors through BetterHelp basically any way you want to and on your own time in your own way.
1: Yes, this is professional help, not self-help, and these are people that can really help put a new perspective to your life. If there's things that are getting in the way of your happiness, your overall self-worth, or other negative thoughts and feelings, this is a great, great medium to help you lift you out of that.
0: Totally. Like it could be really anything, struggling, to uh, achieving your goals or whatever it might be. We really encourage you guys to check it out because there's something for everyone. There's a person for everyone to talk to, to kind of work through and be a better you and deal with mental health problems. So we encourage you guys to check it out. It's betterhelp.com slash portal, and you can use promo code portal, P-O-R-T-A-L, to get 10% off your first month using the service. And we really, really hope you guys check it out.
1: Exactly. There is financial assistance for those who qualify. It's time to start living a better, healthier, happier life, guys. Come on. Let's do it.
0: Yeah. So visit betterhelp.com today slash portal and use promo code portal for 10% off your first month with BetterHelp. And we're back. Okay. Now we're kind of getting into a few things that I was pretty surprised to stumble across. I mean, in some sense, just because we knew what kind of darkness was taking place, but this was something so specific and earlier on that it really makes you wonder what the breakdown amongst the crews might have been. Because Hall would encounter an Inuit hunter who told him about some pretty interesting things.
1: Mm-hmm. Exactly. And like you said, Andrew, this has to have happened early on because it took place on an ice-locked ship. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So...
0: As we were mentioning before the break, Hall was one of these explorers who um, ended up conversing with a lot of local indigenous members and stuff. And he spoke with one hunter who said, quote, he came, came across a great ship locked in the ice. The exact year that he came across the ship is unknown, but we do know that it was earlier on. He was welcomed aboard by the captain at the time. But later on, when he revisited the ship, he was accosted by the men. And he said that their faces, their hands and their clothing were blackened. And he was essentially seized until the captain emerged and ordered him to be released and gave him a gift of reassurance that he wasn't going to be harmed in any other way any further. But he was warned not to approach one particular spot, a tent that was on the ice nearby that contained, quote, black-faced men who lived there. Now, hmm. the what was causing men? exactly this, darkening of the face, gums, eyes... Uh, could have been scurvy or it could have been a combination of things
1: it could have because they did describe the faces hands and clothing these were coal-powered ships so that could have explained it. that's the most mundane explanation like we already said there is no date known we think this could have been franklin's one of his ships erebus or terror however some people have actually thought that it was earlier it was ross's expeditions but I have a little caveat to that. Yeah. If it was Ross's expeditions, he would have been able to explain that, right? It wouldn't be just this one bereft little like mythic element of the search for Franklin that was never explained, Exactly. No,
0: couldn't have been. Mm -hmm. Couldn't have been from him. There was researcher David Woodman who would later on look into the story in more detail in these accounts. And he thought that the situation pointed to a ship uh, basically, you know, absent of any naval discipline, Um, bereft of naval discipline as he would say uh, and possibly at this time extremely short of officers and therefore in leadership on the ships so it's possible that this uh these scary black faces were a result of advanced scurvy and slowly losing their minds and they ended up abandoning the ship another option that he suggested was pretty interesting could have been a group of men celebrating guy Fawkes day
1: so maybe that could have been if that was Ross's expedition, maybe it would just be explained as like, well, we never even thought to mention it because we we're just celebrating and la la la. But it's like you wouldn't, you wouldn't
0: direct Inuit not to go there, though. You wouldn't say, don't go over there. That party is getting a little out of control. Actually, that's a good so point. So that's a little bit.
1: That is a good point. And just going back to uh, just the specific here. um, So he, Woodman actually thought that it could have been a result of advanced scurvy and that this particular episode happened after the initial abandonment of the ships. So this comes into play with other evidence that was found by a man that we're going to get into in just a second here, uh, Francis McClintock, who discovered evidence that one of the sledges may have been heading back towards the ships yeah so if that's the case then this paints a particularly dark picture one where clearly there's a rift that's happened their separation or perhaps these men had made their way back to the ship after abandoning those left on king william island the 30 40 bodies that were found scattered throughout king william island what if these were the very very last survivors and they were like you know what screw this we're not going to back river anymore we're going back to the ships so and we're just going to wait it out and then...
0: Hope it opens up. And if it doesn't, then at least you have shelter of the ship, mm-hmm. I guess.
1: But... <laughs> yeah. So anyways, that was... Yeah, I really enjoyed this little story because this, again, helps paint a picture of the the blackness, right? It creates a light where perhaps we're seeing just a tiny snippet of what was going on. Yeah. So let's get into Francis talk then. So he led... Later expeditions in the fifties, so fifty-seven to fifty-nine, he co-led the Fox, and he co-led that with Lieutenant Hobson. And very late, he did this at the behest of Lady Jane Franklin, who basically refused to submit to the Admiralty's conclusion that, after about a decade spent searching, the expedition had been tragically terminated. There was no no other conclusion. Among their accomplishments in the Arctic was innovations in sledging. So obviously this was very primitive at the time of Franklin, but they innovated the idea of using staggered teams, um, placement of meals and supplies ahead of time. So you can almost like, it's almost like a relay. Yeah. So it's a lot more effective. And he actually had the addition of a map that was drawn by a local Netzlik person, which showed the positions of Victory Cairn, which was the cairn where the only letter... That was like the official documentation of what had happened to the crews was found. yeah And he also placed one of the ships on that map, too, where it had sunk off of King William Island. So was it Terror or Erebus? Hmm. Right. So McClintock and his men successfully recovered the document left at Victory Cairn at the northern end of King William Island after the recovery of another cairn which contained nothing but two broken bottles and a triangularly folded piece of blank paper, which Hobson actually thought was originally written in pencil but etched away due to weathering.
0: Yeah. I mean, I I, I guess... What could that have contained, eh? Three questions. One, Mm -hmm. what what could it have contained? Was it written in pencil because they had nothing else or was it written in pencil because they weren't thinking right at the time?
1: Or what if they thought they were writing and then they weren't... They had like a stick in their hand. (laughs) They weren't actually writing anything. Just delusional.
0: (laughs) That's possible.
1: I don't know. But after more days searching the northern side of King William Island, a smaller cairn was found and then a much larger one. And this contained the all-important letter left from the crews of Erebus and Terror that we actually talked about at the top of the episode. So this is interesting because we didn't actually... Hmm. We didn't talk about one element of this letter. So Hobson described his observations of this report or whatever you want to call it, where he said that there was a mistake in the dates. So on that piece of paper, it said that they passed a winter at Beachy Island in forty six forty seven. It was actually 45-46. Right.
0: That's so right. So again, a right? year earlier.
1: That's interesting. Yeah. That was the first official note and then it wasn't even amended later on by uh by the the subsequent note that was written by crozier and Fitz james so again right that's kind of like that's a weird thing to miss
0: that's why this story like what makes this story so bizarre because all these search parties sent encountered a lot of the same stuff but there were so many things like you're mentioning right now that were aspects of the franklin that were different and like they had already sent men back right mm-hmm. they had already sent men back to uh Like they sent men back to the Orkay Islands, like when they, right at the beginning of their trip, there was some sickness, they sent them back. And then there was the bodies buried on Beachy, standard practice, but still to lose three in your first winter was a little bit ominous. Mm -hmm. That wasn't exactly normal.
1: And to lose so many officers. That was the main thing too. Yeah. But we'll get into that.
0: It's like it was cursed.
1: Yes. Because that goes into the whole idea of uh, lead poisoning and the tins. Okay. Another really important observation that Hobson detected was that the actual writing on the note by captain crozier in particular where he wrote and start tomorrow for great fish river which was back river he wrote this in what was described as a weak tremulous hand and it inclined hobson to the belief that he must have been in ill health in that early period yeah so crozier not looking good for you hobson actually went on to say that from the position assigned to the ships at the time of their abandonment, I concluded that if, as Lord intended us, there was a wreck on the western coast of King William Island, it probably would be found at no great distance from us, as any ships drifting to the south from that position would probably be blank, which is illegible, up by the blank shoulder of the land. <laughs> yeah, so interesting, interesting hey? Yeah. Uh, Another discovery they made was a recovery of a boat containing a body and supplies. There was other articles bearing the initials of officers aboard Erebus and terror. And this boat was actually mounted on a sledge. And both of these were pointed to the northeast. So that was a strange orientation that Hobson remarked upon. He said, The boat head was found pointing to the northeast as if she had been returning to the ships whether this is the case or whether she had been turned by accidents accident or by her crew to afford them a better shelter from the wind, I have no means of judging. hmm So this discovery of the northeastern oriented boat and sledge has led some to theorize that some or all of the party had in fact turned back towards the north. They might have been heading towards the ships they might have been heading towards the same location that Ross and his men had been res- rescued from. But another option was that, like he said here, it was to maximize shelter and protection against the Arctic conditions. Yeah. What do you make of that?
0: I mean, like you just said, like going back potentially to the location of where Ross's earlier expeditions had been saved. I don't understand why that wasn't the plan altogether. Right. I know. Why, why was that not the original plan? They, they had 800 miles to go to Fort Resolution. They had, like 600 miles or or something crazy like that to go to the Backfish River. Like they, it was, the distances they had to cover were just insane. And to think that that was a better option than trying to take your luck with, I mean, especially if you noticed at the time that what you were eating was causing some problems. You were almost better Mm. off taking a risk of waiting another winter i think it was just the restlessness it was all they were almost better off waiting to see if the ships would free up i mean they obviously Mm -hmm. might have lost one by this point
1: yeah because you never know that was because one ship got
0: driven down and then the other thing too is the like the locations of the ships wouldn't have changed all that much if they were frozen
1: well no no because it's like an ice flow it's like a glacier right like the water it's it keeps flowing
0: but it's not like you'd lose them it's not like you'd go be hiking back and you wouldn't be able to find them
1: oh no no i wouldn't move that fast yeah Unless it went under.
0: (laughs) I mean, this is just all of our speculation in 2020. With all this information, it's pretty easy to make these uh, judgments, I guess. Mm -hmm. But there would be a few more things discovered that would be the most bizarre of all. Yes. And those being the Peglar papers or Mm -hmm. papers that would be sort of referred to that later on.
1: Yes. So this was a collection of personal papers that were discovered on a body that was found laying face down. Apparently, death overtook him while he marched. The bones were bleached, but there was still uh, a uniform on the body. Right. So these are the only personal papers ever recovered from the expedition, which makes them highly significant. And interestingly enough, like you said, these are referred to the Pegler papers because the body was originally presumed to be that of Her- Henry Pegler, who was captain of the foretop. And this was because of like, it was a certificate found that was a seaman's narrative on the life of peglar so it was like almost like his not memorial but like his his life journey right on closer examination it didn't really match up that it was the body of peglar though it actually resembled that of a steward the uniformed it's a speculation obviously was rampant but they thought it was a friend of peglar's uh bringing his dead friend papers home some actually proposed it was thomas armitage who was the carrier right and these papers are interesting because, like we said, the only personal account, so what could have been on these pieces of paper, right? Like, what information did they hold?
0: Yeah, pretty bizarre, because the initial thought was that these papers, when examined, were actually written partially in German. Mm-hmm. Uh, due to the prevalence of words like uh, mecht, like M-E-H-T, K-N-I-H-T, like nix. Icht, like E-H-T, like the sounds and enunciations of like what was spelt like was distinctly German. Yeah. Um, And uh, yeah, I mean, it rectified under close examination. Obviously, this was not written in German. These were just randomly misspelled words, words spelled backwards, words uh, almost entirely made up. Uh, The last letter of many of these words was capitalized rather than the first at the beginning of a sentence. Mm -hmm. And... The speculation was sort of like, was this some sort of like a secret code to ensure the privacy of the writer, or, or was this just a result of the sickness of the mind and slowly losing like losing touch with reality? Could it have been illiteracy? I mean, mm-hmm. this is still 1850. I mean, potentially someone trying to document that was just a steward or a cabin boy or something. And much of these content, the contents of these papers have been, you know, they they were discussed as irrelevant to the expedition, but they definitely paint a picture of some pretty bizarre things happening. I mean, what is your initial thought? Just like at the idea of words written backwards and letters capitalized at the end.
1: From what they could actually decipher, because a lot of it was illegible. There was a lot of damage to these papers. A lot of it was blotched out, all that kind of thing.
0: These phrases, some of these phrases are pretty interesting. Like
1: Exactly. So a lot of it was irrelevant. It seemed to be like talking about other experiences like you know like uh, other memories of like warmer climates uh, being a seaman all this kind of thing however there were the other passages that did contain clues to life spent on the ships things such as breakfast to be short rations breakfast spelled wrong without an a whose (laughs) is this coffee and the terror camp clear those were three uh, phrases found in these papers
0: The terror camp clear being Mm -hmm. the most significant.
1: Well, one of the most significant, there was another intriguing passage that had reference to life on the ships just prior to their abandonment. So that was probably the, and this is kind of hard to read because it's very poor English. And again, kind of makes me think it wasn't a secret code. It was more so illiteracy. He's trying to get the message out and doesn't know how to spell words. (laughs) Mm -hmm. That's kind of sad. It's like a five-year-old trying to write a letter, right? You want to read this? Okay. Okay. Do you want me to give it a go? Yeah, I think you
0: should give it a go. So this is, uh... okay, goes as follows. We will have his new boots in the middle watch. As we have got some very hard ground to heave, I uh, shall want some grog to wet our whistle.
1: And that's spelled, our is spelled with an H-O-U-E-R, and then whistle is spelled W-I-S-S-E-L. Right. It's a very poor spelling.
0: All my art, Tom, for I don't think for er now closes, should lay and first men 21st night Agreed.
1: So the new boots referred to were assumed to be boots, such as those found by McClintock and other searchers, which had been modified with the addition of nails or cleats to make them more uh, suitable for the Arctic ice. Right. Uh, There were also references to the hard ground to heave, which could have been referring to either hauling sledges or maybe digging graves. And there was also the reference to the 21st night agreed, which was described as the most tempting of all. Could this have been the 21st of April 1848, four days before the amended record left near Victory Point? So that's interesting to me. I
0: feel like that's most likely, like everyone's deliberating on what to do
1: yeah they don't know and it, th- obviously this is very partial and like if only we could have had more of like a full like imagine imagine if we did manage to find uh, uh what's his name uh fitz james,
0: Crozier. Fitz
1: james. yeah no FitzJames, james yeah his because he was the one that was the most colorful in his descriptions and if we could find those
0: we just though, might well we, uh, we just
1: might unfortunately a lot of those papers diaries journals were actually given to well they were found by indigenous people right like the inuit and they were given because they didn't have any worth for them they gave them to their children to play with so a lot of those records were just ultimately destroyed by kids playing and having fun which you know all all on them but that's really sad yeah same time
0: yep that's yeah
1: (laughs) another interesting factor or i guess just fact of reality at that time was the inaccuracy of the maps and we actually talked about not too in depth we talked about the magnetic aims of the expedition yeah and how they were trying to find magnetic north and or trying to like trying to weed out the influences of magnetic or north on their actual mapping yeah because it was messing with everything and and This is really scary. So to me, at least, when we started looking to this, the Admiralty, when they're going and setting up all these rescue operations, they don't know what route he took at all. No. There was no, there's no like flight. Plan like you know, like they do for planes or like a ship's logbook, like you know, like your your record of whatever, and you submit it before you go. Right, like your route plan or whatever. Your projected
0: route. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you have no way of saying because of the ice and because of whatever else.
1: Exactly, and so there was considerable guesswork in the position of the ships. Many supposed that they would have taken a similar tack to Ross's men, right? So going north and getting picked up by whalers or any sort of ship passing by. And so that was kind of where they focused as well as the overland. So right, yeah. in my mind, I'm like, this is just horrible. Like how, how bad of a plan is this? Right. You
0: I mean, just, it's like, it's a, it's, it seems, I mean, it's so easy for us to say that now. Right. But it's true. like, you're, you're, if you don't know what's there, you can't plan. And you, so what do you do? It's like, you, th- you either you either don't explore or you fly blind. Those are I the guess. two options. True. And that's what they had to deal with.
1: And I guess they were confident in the fact that basically all they had left to map was like a 500 kilometer stretch that was in, it was a particular strait. it was the barrel straight. Right. That, that was all that was left supposedly for them. But again, like you said, like everything's changing, the, the ice melts, the ice refreezes, it's locked for years, sometimes it's not, all this stuff. And then, added to that was the idea that King William Island was thought of as King William Land. That's right. They didn't even think they could go east.
0: No, they thought that there was maybe a a sheltering bay on the sort of north coast of it, but that, yeah, that it wasn't an island, that it was. Mm -hmm. uh, I do want to point out too, I don't actually remember if we brought this up in in part one, but kind of going along the lines of like doomed from beginning, from the beginning, and we're talking about how you get locked in the ice, you you can't predict it, you know, you get stuck, you have to change your course, all this stuff. When the modern search for the ships was taking place in 2014, which we'll cover eventually, Mm -hmm. they basically, like in one article I was looking at, it basically said like, Franklin's ships... Met the like the most warmest temperatures, like unprecedented warm temperatures in the last hundred years leading up to eighteen forty five for them to actually get into the position where they ended up locked in the ice right. They most likely wouldn't have died. They would have been blocked much, much earlier and just not have been able to map anymore. Mm-hmm. All the conditions for this were perfect, from the rush of the tin food to the the weather being unprecedentedly warm,
1: mm-hmm.
0: which plays into the whole idea of earlier on people genuinely believed that the Arctic was warm. They thought you could make it through a bunch of ice and then in the north there would be a warm sea waiting for you yeah. after you ventured all the way through. It's like a reward for suffering through the, the cold. Mm-hmm. Yeah, And the irony of that is just scathing to me.
1: It, it really is. And it's so unfortunate. And all these false illusions, all these... Notions that were fancifully playing in in Franklin's head, and even even after and before that, right? It's it's hard to imagine. So in all, there was over thirty rescue expeditions sent in the wake of Franklin's disappearance, efforts that spanned decades, centuries, even three centuries now, and these were mostly fruitless in finding the actual ships themselves, instead finding these scattered remnants of the men and their supplies. By 1880, the British crown had handed off the territories of the north to Canada, as well as their efforts to map this Northwest Passage. And the mystery of Franklin and his men faded into obscurity for the most part. There were a few different expeditions. I think one was in 1919. There was one in the 40s. And then in the 80s, there was a search mission led by Canadian anthropologist Owen Beattie who discovered remains on king william island that confirmed previous testimony of the inuit in regards to cannibalism yeah there were cut marks that clearly showed yeah like severed bones of arms and legs that formed the conclusion that the men had resorted to hacking apart the dead in order to carry and create mobile food sources that could be consumed along the way uh, interestingly enough, uh, Beatty is co-author of the book Frozen in Time, The Fate of the Franklin Expedition, which he co-authored with John Geiger. And John Geiger's, we've referenced his research quite heavily in this uh, episode yeah, and in part one too. Yep. Definitely recommend checking out his research. So this again, it, it rectified the character of John Ray and of uh, even just of the Inuit themselves, right? They were telling the truth. It wasn't wasn't as if they were lying why would they exactly what would they have to
0: gain from that
1: nothing nothing you know and so everything kind of just you know there was a lot of different rumors there's a lot of different not rumors i would say but a lot of different theories floating around as to now that there's more skeletal evidence and more modern evidence there was more increasing speculation as to how much lead poisoning affected the crew what were the causes of morbidity and mortality i actually had to look up both of those well, not both of those but i had to look at morbidity versus mortality because i was like what what are we talking <laughs> right, about right so it's literally just the difference between morbidity is disease and obviously mortality is death of course hmm.
0: and i mean amongst those two things there were various different options as to what could have contributed i mean we've mentioned scurvy obviously lead poisoning but also tuberculosis uh, potentially zinc deficiencies were were issues as well botulism Mm. and you know not that uh seasonal affected disorder would have been uh, particularly scary considering the other things but not having vitamin d and living in the arctic uh, for years on end uh, would probably affect you pretty heavily as well Mm -hmm. Uh, scurvy though being one of the most uh the, the most insidious of any of these. And when thinking back to uh, the black face, black teeth, uh, the mm-hmm. tent of men that were, um, where the Inuit were warned not to approach them, matches up with a lot of this. So mm-hmm. swollen and spongy purplish gums uh, that are prone to bleeding and losing teeth, bulging eyes, uh, bleeding on the skin, uh, easily bruised skin, uh, very, very uh, dry hair that can break off and wounds that just don't seem to heal. And I think that would be the most scary and ominous out of any of those symptoms being in the Arctic, especially as a sailor. I mean, people people were hurt all the time. You had to get your, people had to be, have limbs amputated and whatever it may have been.
1: Oh yeah. For like things like frostbite or whatever. Exactly. If you're rotting from the inside out, that's pretty (laughs) nefarious. Like I'd be pretty scared.
0: And of course the lead poisoning aspect is almost entirely uh, speculated upon because of the bodies buried at Beachy. Which were extremely well-preserved because of the temperature. They're and, mummified. Uh, they're, they're mummified, yeah.
1: The dry conditions too. They
0: did have up to 20 times the normal amount of of lead in their system and uh, at the time. And this was, uh, yeah, John Torrington, 1984, uh, an and anthropologist, at Amber just mentioned, Dr. Owen Beattie, mm-hmm. uh, make reference to this. But they were buried in graves. They were buried, you know ceremony like in a ceremony
1: they had beautiful graves and, uh, they're highly decorated like the actual tombstones
0: so it's just sort of weird to think that like you know you'd be, franklin was giving a eulogy and and you're burying these men and you don't know really they were they were thought to have died from pneumonia
1: yes and uh, that's where we start to get into these complicating factors right where it's like it's a combination of things it's a combination of scurvy potential lead poisoning weakening the body to the extent that things like tuberculosis and pneumonia can take over and it all works together and i loved this quote from john geiger's book this quote here is from page 93 of his book he says lead poisoning has insidious effects on both mind and body in body even tiny amounts can cause fatigue and digestive upset headaches and joint pains lead is a potent neurotoxin leading to memory loss mood disorder paranoia pain tingling and numbness in extremities and general mental breakdown so he asked the question could this have been a contributing factor to the decisions that were made and i would say probably if you can't remember something you're going to start to lose your mind, right? Like, even, like, you made the good point of saying, like, well, what if something happened, like, and then you forget 10 seconds later, and then someone turns to you to, like, you know, follow up on what had just happened. You just have no idea what's going on. Right. Maybe that's why they totally blanked on the idea of going to where Ross's men had been rescued.
0: That makes sense. But then the only argument against that, I guess, is... is. The speculation that would sort of come out a little bit later on that there wasn't necessarily clear cut evidence that all of the men were were experiencing the same Mm -hmm. symptoms or that lead poisoning would have advanced as much as it did. Like there may have only been some of the provisions that resulted in in, in contamination, even if they were rushed.
1: Well, even because like we did allude to Goldner's uh, Meats as like the source uh, company for all of the tinned food that was brought with them. And they, yeah, no, apparently there was one article that claimed that the British Admiralty was aware of these claims of, yeah, exactly, like, spoiled foods and, and these, these inadequate seals by 1852— so again, that's hmm, that's seven years after they left.
0: Yeah. There was a
1: history today article that claimed um, that the documentation of the original contract at Deptford in April of 1845 revealed that the order for the tins was rushed, strengthening the view that a significant portion of the expedition supply was contaminated. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So there was those cans we talked about on Beachy Island. They revealed incomplete soldering of the lead. And so the seams on the sides of the cans were essentially destroyed. It also, I I put this note in here too, uh, it makes sense that they lost a disproportionate amount of officers so early on because these were actually considered luxury items at the time. Right. Mm -hmm. So they would have been eating more of them. Even though in my mind I'm like, I would have given, (laughs) that's like dog food, man. Give that to the.
0: Yeah. The well, crew. I mean, of course they had, they had dried meats. They had, they butchered oxen uh, in the early years of their, their trip. And then the, the tin provisions were, were their save were supposed to be the saving grace. They were supposed to be the three to three to seven years. Like we, we mm-hmm. said up to five, like they could have rationed up to seven mm-hmm. if things were, if things kept.
1: And, um, and the, the notes, uh, the papers, uh, the Pegler papers did allude to that, like, you know, strict rationing for breakfast. Right. Sentencer.
0: Oh man. It's so, kind of insane so stuff. to think.
1: Uh, I liked this. This is from a, a author, uh, that was published in History Today, 1987. And she, her name's Sheila Robotham. Wow. That's quite the last name. But she said, quote, Insidious ingestion of lead weakened its members to a point where tuberculosis and pneumonia wrought havoc. Conditions identified by the postmortems on beachy Island bodies, anorexia, weakness, and paranoia would have compounded the effects of starvation and scurvy, leading to the final
0: horrors of cannibalism. There's so many questions I have still, and we always will have them. Obviously, when it comes to timeline factors, and Like my, I'm ready to jump into some theories if Mm -hmm. you are, because with you reading that quote there, I mean, clearly, clearly it's very likely that, I mean, the tins were contaminated. We do know this to some extent, like there was lead in the bodies at Beachy, these types of things. Mm -hmm. But if there was enough lead in the bodies found at Beachy to be in really uh, advancing um, some of these early onset diseases that people would get in the Arctic, it seems strange to me that that would happen you'd bury three bodies there that those three bodies two of them being officers i believe or at least one being an officer uh in good health when they left and then continuing on uh for the next year and leaving a report that things are pretty okay you know that that yeah, you're so- still setting up your magnetic observatory stuff there's a forge on king on 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 uh, different uh, spots along the way mm-hmm. you know like the The report from, from Fitz James was things were fine early on. And, like, so you'd think that, like, if three were so far advanced that others would have been two. There might have been some inkling that, hey, maybe we need to think
1: mm-hmm.
0: about this. And was it just Franklin and him being like, hell no, we need to get through the passage. I'm just going to block all that out of my mind because I need to redeem myself.
1: And just to kind of add to that was the idea that they were supposedly presumed dead of pneumonia. So, what was their perception of disease on the ships? What was it like? Were they looking at the symptoms or were they looking at the causes? Right, because, like I just said, like it would the the most prominent symptoms would have been aches, pains, like you know, like uh, things like memory loss. Sure, but
0: and that's things, what I'm saying. Things like,
1: like pneumonia would have been attributed to the weather. It wouldn't have been attributed to the weakening of the body because of other nefarious sort of things. For sure. Mm -hmm.
0: But if if those who ended up with pneumonia because of being weakened from other things, you'd think that some other people would be like, man, my joints are really sore. I don't have pneumonia, but I am sore and I'm tired. I am Mm -hmm. having nightmares when I sleep. This is weird.
1: How much of that would you personally attribute to your foreign environment, to the cold, to the length the duration in those conditions, you know what i mean? Yeah. How much of it would you just like
0: the, totally, 100%. Mm-hmm. The only i guess rebuttal to that i would have is like these were crews made up of hardened seamen and uh like that were that had been out there before, not necessarily in the arctic, but some of them definitely had, and the rest were marines. They were they had fought in the the you know, in the battle of trafalgar and different things like this. Like they were hardened men. That had been through rough, I' so seen scurvy before, seen disease on ships before.
1: hardened men complain?
0: Very good point.
1: hmm
0: Very yes. good point.
1: And just going back to this overall point on the lead poisoning, there have been recent studies that kind of, con- not contradict, but they've taken issue with lead poisoning as the primary cause of disaster amongst Franklin's men. There was this one from 2016. Uh, it was called The Health of Nine Royal Navy Arctic Crews from 1848 to 1854 and Implications for the Lost Franklin Expedition. So they actually did a cross comparison of the search ships' um, sick books, so all the resulting search right. people. Mm-hmm. So they tried to compare the conditions of the morbidity and mortality amongst those crews. So what they found was that there was no clear evidence of lead poisoning, despite the relatively high level of lead exposure that was inevitable on ships at that time, as they described. There was no significant difference between the deaths of non-officer ranks of Franklin's ships and several of the search ships.
0: So- See, that's strange. I find that to be strange.
1: There's no significant difference between the deaths of non-officer ranks on Franklin's ships and several of the search ship. Oh, so I guess they basically that, saying like, they're paralleling each other. There was no and real because real the officers were eating the same things. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Yes. Yeah, so they that was interesting to me. So they were basically they thought that the greater numbers of deaths amongst the officers on Franklin's ships were probably a result of non-medical factors such as accidents and injuries sustained while hunting and during exploration which could be that is plausible in my opinion i
0: mean we'll find out more if we can ever find any additional documents potentially Mm -hmm. from the ship's Discovered if they can yeah. be if they're preserved in any way.
1: Yeah, there was another study here actually from 2017 that was a critical assessment of the oral condition of the crew on Franklin's expedition. So this was assessing uh, the theory that the crew was suffering from scurvy or lead poisoning, and they kind of put forth an alternative notion that oral conditions, including these blackened, dried, hardened mouths, were described, could have been result of miliary tuberculosis. I I milliary TB is something that in my mind i'm thinking okay that could have been onset by these complicating factors but tb this type of tb is actually characterized by a wide dissemination in the human body and by these tiny lesions that form so their appearance could have been drastically changed very true yeah.
0: the reason i sort of got confused on that last quote you, you you had you reread for me there was just like the idea that like the way that was phrased with the the percentage of lead in the bodies like sort of sounds as if in one in some in one breath it's almost saying that like there was all like all ships at that time had lead like whether it was the yeah. water piping whatever right well,
1: exactly so
0: it's like it was very likely that the tin provisions were contaminated but at the same time mm-hmm. we're sort of making a bit of a leap potentially because we know that there was lead Mm. in these people's systems
1: and we don't have the sick books from those ships we have not recovered those
0: and And that's why it's like it makes me feel like there's something and i'm not like i'm not gonna jump in and i i I almost want there to be a paranormal element but it's like but (laughs) but at the same time it's like there's so there's got to be stuff we don't know there has to be because it's like people had been exploring before the people had been running into these issues before dealing with scurvy you've got lemon juice with you it's three years in maybe it starts to slowly lose its effectiveness but would scurvy be advancing that quickly mm-hmm. at that time potentially maybe and maybe have, not i don't know you have
1: so much supplies too like i guess there was just very scarce to come across Inuit that you could trade seal for that would give you the necessary vitamins so you wouldn't get scurvy right And get your own food. And they allegedly hunted, exactly, they Mm. hunted
0: seal themselves, which of Mm. course has vitamin C.
1: There was another thing that I didn't include, another article that I briefly looked at in the early stages of this lead poisoning research. And they were talking about how they had done a cross-comparative study similar to the one I mentioned where they were comparing the sick books from subsequent like search missions but this was like looking at a particular Siemens uh, cemetery and the location escapes me at this moment but it was the same time period and so they did a cross cross comparison between those bodies, the bodies at beachy and then other skeletal evidence that have been found later on on King William Island and so forth and they actually didn't find like a rel- they didn't find an elevated, lead that would suggest that there was like a that was an extreme factor involved right so i feel like because we don't know what happened really we rely on lead poisoning as this you know the properties of a neurotoxin a general mental breakdown this has to explain why they were never rescued why they made these poor decisions if you want to call them poor decisions i don't know what would you like?
0: Yeah, <laughs> just strange so decisions, I guess. Yeah. Like, uh, yeah, but I guess it's sort of redundant, even if it was lead or whatever it was. What, regardless, it's like clearly, clearly, the men were slowly losing their minds, and this is where I feel like a combination of that with potentially what you might call "quote unquote" like paranormal factors, or at least for them at the time, factors they couldn't understand. So, right. for example, the magnetism research and aspects mm-hmm. like that there was some speculation on the sort of conspiracy theory side of this that that might have been something they ran into as far as like wait they lost they became disoriented they didn't really know where they were going they thought they may have been going the right direction and maybe that's why that boat was turned around like their compasses mm-hmm. may have not been working properly that makes they were sense. I, they think they're going south for a certain period of time and then you realize you're going dead east and you're like what the hell are we doing
1: oh yeah what well, uh, if you get caught in a blizzard right you yeah. don't know which direction to go
0: so mm-hmm. I mean that's not paranormal per se, but if you sit there and you're looking at your compass spinning around and you have no idea where you are and you wouldn't know why that that's ha- you wouldn't know why that's happening. The other thing I think is Terrifying. important to point out is like this is desolate land. So for the men's perspective, there's no caribou to hunt. There's very little seal. There's very little whatever. On the flip side, the same goes for everything else that's potentially in this area. And a group, Ooh, yeah. a, a group of weakened um, slow moving food would be the perfect target for something. Mm. I don't know what that would be because well, polar bears were definitely not prevalent in this area. Uh, the next, they, they, they were there once in a while, wolves. but they weren't common. Wolves weren't really around because there's nothing for them to eat. True. This is where the speculation of the AMC series really comes in because we haven't found enough bodies to, to, to make speculation as to what happened to everyone. We've mm-hmm. only found some, we know some were cannibalized. We know some probably just straight up froze or or drowned or whatever.
1: Yeah, they're probably still locked in the ice.
0: Yeah, um, but the rest, I mean, if they're hungry, if there's anything else out out there, you can safe bet that it's pretty hungry too.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a really good point to make. And if you did happen to stumble across something, what if you were trying to hunt something and then it just went terribly wrong for you because you are so severely weakened and your mental capacity is just not what it should be?
0: What about what if what if the men started even hallucinating to the extent where it wasn't even like cannibalism like decided cannibalism it was like they began hunting each other as if they were hunting something that's not even a man. Oh, man. Like, I mean, and that's the reason why maybe one of the boats turned back. They were like, "Uh, these guys are starting to lose it. We need to go a different direction.
1: Perhaps, um, yeah. That th- none of that, That's all pure speculation. And none of those bodies evidenced w- had signs of, like, murder per se. They had been dismembered, but that was post-mortem. So, like, they probably died of disease. They just succumbed to whatever, and then they were consumed by the remaining survivors.
0: That's also... But... To that point as well, though, it's like you can the the cuts on the parts that were consumed were made post-mortem. The actual death of the individual, like examining the cranium or anything like that, we don't know if it was post-mortem. We don't know if they weren't murdered.
1: I've got an interesting point to make on that note too. I didn't include this in our notes, but in the course of research for this episode, I did come across multiple statements uh, that talked about, they discussed how many of the bodies found on king william island actually had no heads many have actually thought that similar to the arms and legs they were consuming aspects of the craniums including the brains
0: lots of nutrients
1: yeah Mm -hmm.
0: no that fully no that fully makes sense i just think like if you are transporting the severed heads of your deceased companions to eat the brains If you're hungry enough and they're not dead yet, I think if you're willing to do that Mm -hmm. moments after their death, you might be willing to uh, edge it along.
1: True. And we did see aspects of that in the terror where people were murdered um, in the later stages when they were succumbing to disease.
0: And this all comes down to the, again, like the the breakdown of command, like who's in charge. Mm -hmm. And then just the basically like no... Like you don't care anymore. Like there's like the mm-hmm. like, morality is out the window. Any, anything else is out the window. It's almost like the way I picture it. Like I, you can't really empathize or put yourself in that situation, but I try to imagine what it would be like. It would basically just be a blur, like a dream, mm-hmm. like a nightmare. Like it's not even happening.
1: Sorry. One other thing I forgot to mention about the, um, the heads, uh, cause you were talking about, Oh, what if they were, they could have possibly, you know, murders me too. The missing heads, uh obviously you can kill someone by hitting them on the head, so if their head's missing, you don't know the cause of death. So ergo, yeah. True. Always a possibility. Always a possibility. Or just a difference of opinion too. It's life and death and if you you know what I mean, if you don't have that leadership, you don't have that unity, then things start to crumble. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
0: So it's fun to speculate on despite the 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 horrific nature that this is a true story. Well, it's just, Uh, it's
1: fascinating. It's morbid curiosity, right? It really is. Mm -hmm. It
0: really is. And I think I'm, I'm, I'm down to the, down to the wire here, down to the end. I have no real theories other than the stuff we've kind of just peppered in throughout Mm -hmm. like more questions, right? They're not theories. They're questions like why not go to the spot? Ross and his men were rescued to what extent were you losing your minds? And each individual it would have a different perception of of the horrors around them as you're slowly losing your mind. It's not like you're collectively as a group just at the same process.
1: Exactly, you're not and on the like, same page.
0: Yeah, that's what's terrifying.
1: Hmm. Yeah. No, I have no real conclusions. I'm just really, really excited to see more of uh, what comes of the excavations of the two wrecks. So. Yeah. Um, they were both discovered in the last decade. Yep. So it was 2014. It was a Parks Canada co-led with, I think it was the Coast Guard, Canadian Ghost Guard. Something like that, yeah. Mm-hmm, and a couple of other universities, I think, too. They actually found Erebus in 2014. Yeah. And then they found two years later in 2016, the Terror, to slightly to the north. And they are still in the process of excavating. And it's insane. I just saw an article published this year, just a couple of, I think it was a month or two ago, and it's talking about how they are just entering the ships. All they've done in the last like six years since they found Erebus has been documenting everything. Survey, yeah. They're surveying. They're not touching anything. It's all just leave in situ, so in place, don't disturb it. And then they they're gonna start peeling away the layers. And could yeah. you just imagine? This is your entire life's work being one of these researchers or being part of these crews and like john geiger had a chance to be involved in that too and he was on the ship i don't think he was there when they found it but he he definitely was involved to a degree really cool but it's just amazing to think okay so you find it and then six years later you're still you haven't even really like cracked into it you know it's crazy. I mean?
0: And and some of the early images from the inside, now that they're going to be starting to do some actual excavation, is of like, you know, full bottles of liquor still left in there. Mm. You know, plates and cutlery and these types of things still left yeah. behind. And this sort of reminds me of something we forgot to mention too um, that plays into the sort of like the idea of just Victorian England. And it definitely speaks to the the mindset of the men when they first left the ships because we know that some of the sledges they were pulling – had stuff in them that they really didn't need and yep. that slippers. To, to me yeah like slippers <laughs> plates like heavy things like mm-hmm. nice china plates and cutlery it's like you can't just bring one fork and knife each that you keep in your back pocket you don't need to bring a freaking full set of plates cup cups cutlery mm-hmm. you're lugging all this stuff that you can't eat and to me that speaks to they were very much of sound mind at least crozier and some of the those in command when they first left because they said, you know what? We still need to keep some civility about us here. We need our Victorian finer things with us as we Mm -hmm. trek through the Arctic.
1: That makes sense actually.
0: But then at the same time. Comforts
1: of home, yeah.
0: Comforts of home. But, mm. then, but then so much at the same time speaks to the fact that they wouldn't have been thinking those things. So it's almost like maybe it was the delusion that made them bring that out. We're going to be fine. It's going to be a quick hike. Let's bring the plates with us because we don't want to forget those. Mm-hmm. Bizarre. Absolutely bizarre.
1: The amount of effort and energy that was expended on carrying all of that equipment is astounding in my opinion. And mm.
0: of course, in the end, they all perished in ways that we won't ever know for some of them Mm -hmm. Uh, and we want to know what you guys think about uh, the search and this whole story and sort of like what what it kind of brought up what thoughts came to mind for you when you were listening to this because like for us Mm -hmm. for me like this was one of the I don't like we tried to convey it as best we could but like for me this was one of the darkest stories I've ever looked at and to me it's like I mean, it's very similar in a lot of ways to like uh, like Dyatlov Pass, almost esque. In um, terms
1: of the tragedy. In terms and- of the tragedy,
0: and obviously the cold and things like this, mm-hmm. and, and the lack of knowing. The um, lack obviously, of knowing, there's yeah. more lack of knowing on that side, but it mm-hmm. brought a tear to my eye, really. Like, especially like the, oh, the spot yeah. where it was like fif- in, in 1850, they were freaking two miles away.
1: A few miles, yeah. Uh,
0: that's just horrifically depressing. It's cringeworthy, um, yeah. Fascinating no. <clears throat> stuff.
1: Yeah, like we said, we want to know what you guys think of all this. What, what? yeah, what your favorite theories are and just, again, right? Like, I just, I can't wait to see what they uncover. And I'm going to be keeping my eyes on that, that mission, that excavation. They have some things working for them and some things working against them. Obviously, these really harsh Arctic conditions, and they're still struggling against the ice. They've got what was it like 40,000 horsepower yeah, icebreakers? More than
0: that, even some of them, right? Yeah,
1: mm. and they're still struggling with that. There's days where they can't dive at all because of the weather. It's a very short summer season, they're actually able to do excavations, so that's probably why it's taking so long, right? Yeah. And then I'm just, oh, I just keep thinking of the gems that could be hidden in there, like Fitz James's papers. One thing working for them is the fact that because it is so cold, the waters themselves are great at preserving things. For sure. They're not moving around too much. They're just settled the ship itself, like none of the mass, or at least on Erebus, none of the mass are up anymore, but it's mostly intact. So it's a, it's a prize. Yeah. It's, it's a real gem of a find.
0: And we're going to cover that as a little bit of a bonus. And I think the wildest thing about it is that Erebus was discovered in extremely shallow water, like you 30 feet, it, not yeah. even like.
1: I think it was 11 meters. Yeah. Under the th- yeah. Water so like 30 shore. feet. Yeah. And just off of King William Island in that little, I think they call it Erebus Bay. Now, I could be wrong. To but. think
0: that uh, over a hundred and seventy <laughs> years of not knowing, and it was just a few feet beneath the surface. Yeah, wild. Well, well, you guys, thank you so much for listening to this part two of our Franklin Expedition series. Yeah, we've uh,
1: we we've got to thank our Patreon supporters, our producer Tim Godby, yes sir, our regular sponsors of the show too. We've got uh, Audible and Better Help, mm-hmm. and all of you lovely listeners. So, thank you for listening. And uh, I guess until next time, on into the portal.
0: Your gateway to the bazaar. Straight Up Strange Productions Discover more shows like this one at straightupstrange.com